Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. They come and, and they spend some time with him in silence, weeping and mourning. And, and by the way, if, if you know someone really suffering and sorrowing, you can be a comfort by just sitting in silence with them. But as soon as you open your mouth, you're more likely to cause damage than to bring comfort. Why? Because we can't help but try to offer something that makes sense to us. In Pastor Sam's message, Repent or Perish, we look at Luke chapter 13 in its entirety, and we begin today's broadcast with part one of that study. As we look at the first 17 verses of this chapter, and we consider Jesus discussing the need to repent, sharing the parable of the fig tree, and healing a spirit-possessed woman on the Sabbath. So let's listen in. Let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 13, title of our study this morning, Repent or perish. Luke 13, repent or perish. I know what some of you are thinking. What a perfect post-Thanksgiving message. Repent or perish. Well, it turns out that it is a very appropriate message because we're going to see some confusion in the minds of Jesus' disciples and in the minds of some religious leaders and and we're going to do our very best to, to not only clear up whatever possible confusion they had so it doesn't spread here, but, but also to make some very practical application. It starts, there were present at that season, some who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We'll start with Pilate because Jesus mentions him in a massacre that he was responsible for. It actually takes us back to when Pilate first became governor of the region. And one of the first things he did to honor Caesar who had appointed him was he brought these giant ensigns bearing the image of Caesar in to Jerusalem. Well, the Jews went berserk. I mean, they were in the streets shouting and threatening and, and they were like, that stuff's got to go. This is idolatrous. We will not have it in our city. Pilate says, hey, I got to squash this. You know, it, it, this can't be happening. I'm just getting started. So he sends out his soldiers and they tell the people, you guys cease and desist or you're going to be put to death. And the people are like, go ahead and kill us. I love that about them. You know, it's, it's just like, we're not backing down. Well, Pilate has only two choices. Either he kills them and that sort of sets off, you know, you're, you're going to rule and reign over this area. That's not the best way to get started. His other choice was, well, then I'll have to back down. That's not all that great either, but better than killing a bunch of innocent people simply for protesting idolatry in their streets. So Pilate backs down and we get some insight into him. We see that first of all, he was foolish in, in threatening the people. He was foolish to bring those idolatrous incense into the city. And if you think, well, what's the big deal? Image of Caesar. It wouldn't be long before Caesar demanded that everyone worship his image. 
And so these guys saw the handwriting on the wall. They're like, we don't want those. We're not going to do that. So, so Pilate makes this foolish threat. And if you're a parent, learn from this. I know some of you said, you do that one more time, I'm going to kill you. I'm not suggesting you should follow through, but I'm saying it's a vain and foolish threat. You never say something to your child you're not willing to follow up on or going to follow up on. And so the people saw from the beginning that Pilate was someone who could be manipulated, who could be threatened. And, and they used that. Remember when Jesus stands before Pilate three times, he pronounces him innocent and he has him scourged and crucified. The Jews knew the character and nature of Pilate because they'd already stood him down. Well, Pilate kind of let this get to him and, and you imagine it, it would happen to any of us. And so uh, an opportune time comes and, and once again, the people are rioting this time in the Galilee region. And so what does he do? He sends his soldiers out in plain clothes. They're not dressed as soldiers. They're undercover. And they go about stabbing the people as they do, of course. The Jews aren't, aren't stupid. They know that this is Pilate at work. They know that that's what's going on. So he makes a lot of enemies among the people. And, and so the question is asked of our Lord. What was up with all that? I mean, and his Question and answer to their question reveals two things. First, that we're not in a position to judge why people suffer or what's going on in their lives. And sometimes we think we know. In fact, the better we know people, the easier it is for us to, to make this mistake, to be guilty of this sin, to think, well, I, I, they deserve what they're going through because Lord knows I know what they've done. We don't know what led to all of this, but, but here's how Jesus deals with it. He says, do you think those guys were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Do you really think that? And then he says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I don't think he's saying you're going to be stabbed by, you know, some under cover, uh, you know, soldiers, nor does he mean, hey, you're going to have a, a you know, uh, a big tower fall on you, as he says in, in uh, verse four, the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus point is simple and straightforward. We're not to be judging and if we're going to judge, we should make sure we're judging ourselves. In fact, we're told uh, later, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. So instead of trying to figure out what's going on out there, he says, you want to start with you. And he gives a series of parables and, and exhortations, illustrations to, to, in, in varying ways to show us that the day of judgment is certain. The day of death, absolute. And we'll all be judged by the Lord. So we want to make sure we're not judging others. We want to make sure we're prepared for God's judgment. And he really goes on to illustrate all of that in the rest of the chapter. A couple of other issues in this area of judging others. You may remember the book of Job. There's a guy named Job who God said was a just and upright man, one who eschewed evil. In other words, God looks down and he sees Job and, and this guy is really pleasing him. And so he's in a conversation with Satan and Satan accuses God of, well, of course, you've blessed him, but you let me at him and he'll curse you to your face. 
I read that story and almost every time I'm like, God, if Satan shows up, don't mention my name. You know, it's, I don't like where that story goes. But the issue is his comforters, miserable comforters, he calls them at some point. They come in and they spend some time with him in silence, weeping and mourning. And, and by the way, if, if you know someone really suffering and sorrowing, you can be a comfort by just sitting in silence with them. But as soon as you open your mouth, you're more likely to cause damage than to bring comfort. Why? Because we can't help but try to offer something that makes sense to us. And so Job's friends, here's what made sense to them. We know God doesn't afflict the righteous. So you must not be righteous. That's not what God said. He said he was just. He was righteous. But they knew God didn't afflict the righteous. So they're like, why don't you just repent and get this over with? Why don't you just confess? And he's like, I'd be happy to if I only knew what I needed to repent of, what I needed to confess. And the reality is they did something that we need to make sure we don't do. And that's comfort people by accusing them of something they haven't done. That's what they were doing. It gets more complicated when the law of Moses is given. It was given to Israel through Moses and, and there were conditions in it. And one of the conditions and the promises associated with the conditions, well, there were going to be blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. So the Jews of that day and even up to Jesus day, when they saw people suffering, they applied this personally and individually. I want to tell you, it wasn't personal and individual. It was corporate. It was a community blessing or curse. He told the nation, if you turn and get into idolatry, I'm going to I'm going to curse the nation. And if you, of course, he deals with individuals. I'm not saying he doesn't, but those particular promises to bless or curse. They were corporate. And so when the community was turning from the Lord, he would stop up the rain. So the community would say, whoa, hasn't rained for a while. Doesn't it say something back here about, oh yeah, God said, we better pray. We better humble ourselves. We better repent. And so they got confused and many continue to this day to be confused about these very issues. We see it even in Jesus' disciples. They come across the guy born blind and to him, he's a mere curiosity. They wonder and they ask the Lord, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? Now, Jesus doesn't really appreciate that they've reduced this suffering man to a curiosity and he addresses that issue. But, but here's the other thing. While it's possible the parents could have sinned because we know such things today, there are sins that you could commit that could cause your child to be born blind because there are diseases you could get through various sins that can actually lead to such things. But the idea that maybe the child before he was born sinned and now God is judging him, by the way, it's not God punishing someone if they commit a sin and, and get a disease and then others suffer as a result. That are, that's the natural consequence of sin. God is the one saying, hey, don't go that way. Watch out. Do right. You know, this is the way to walk. Walk in it. So, so the, the point is, Jesus just says neither. Now, he's not saying the kid's not a sinner. He's not saying the parents aren't sinners. He's saying it's no one's sin that caused this blindness. But while it's light, I got to get to work. He's saying, it's time to work. It's time to minister. It's time to heal. It's not time to merely discuss why somebody is suffering. It's time to alleviate 
that suffering and we'll come back to all of this. Well, Jesus, bottom line here is if you believe God is responsible for these judgments, well, you better make sure you're prepared for judgment then because the, the bottom line is we're all going to die. So he's saying repent and prepare because judgment will come. Now, he gives a couple of parables. Actually, he gives a series of them. And in between, he'll have some practical uh, application. He speaks the first parable. It's the parable of a barren fig tree. And let me just say that both the vineyard and the fig tree are symbols of Israel in the Old Testament. And remember, he's speaking primarily to Jews here. There may be a few Gentiles hanging out, but mostly the crowd surrounding Jesus is Jewish. They have a background. They know the scriptures. So he says, a certain man planted a fig tree in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. When you planted a fig tree in Israel at this time in history, the first three years you were to, well, just let it grow. You weren't to take any fruit from it. The fourth year would be your first year that you actually harvested and that harvest belonged to the Lord. Fifth, sixth, seventh, that's yours. And so here's a guy he's planted. He waits us three years. Fourth year comes and either there's nothing for the Lord or maybe there was, but the next year there's nothing. There's nothing again. There's nothing. And so here's what's happened. He looks at the fig tree and he thinks, listen, a fig tree and I planted it. It only is useful if it produces figs. The wood isn't good for building. It's not really great for fire. A fig tree has one purpose and that's to produce fruit. And he's saying a figless fig tree, just taking up space, just wasting the nutrients in the soil. So cut it down and plant something useful. Now, here's the application, and they would have gotten it. Israel is God's fig tree, and he came looking for and expecting fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, and, and then joy and peace and long-suffering and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. And by the way, here's how it applies to us. He's planted us with the very same purpose in mind, that our lives would bear fruit for him, that people who come in contact with us would, would see his love and his joy and his mercy and his kindness and his goodness. And so he's just giving them a picture of what he's seeing and where that's leading. He'll give some very clear and sobering uh, prophecies of coming judgment before we get to the very end of this chapter. But, but at this point, just know this is a subtle but real prophecy, not just a story or, hey, this is what happens with a fruitless fig tree, but, but this is what was going to happen to the nation of Israel. Now in verse 10, he's teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Uh, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. It begins with the declaration that 
it's a Sabbath day and Jesus is teaching in a synagogue. This, if it were a, a musical or if it were a movie, bad music would start to play in the background because this is one of those scenes where you just know, okay, synagogue, Sabbath, something's about to happen. Now there's, there's a good thing that's going to happen and then there's always a, a, a negative response to it. Jesus comes in, he looks immediately, his eyes are going to go to the person, whether it's in a home or in a service, it's going to go to the guy with the withered hand or the guy who can't walk or the woman who can't stand up straight. And in this case, her disease, her, her deformity, the thing she was suffering, well, they were brought about by demon activity. Now, I, I want to share a couple things real briefly just to make sure we don't end up at this extreme or this extreme. Here are the two extremes. When it comes to demonic activity, there are some people who read something like this and say, well then, okay, she was diseased. She was deformed as a result of demonic activity. Therefore, all disease must be the result of demonic activity. And I would suggest well, we know better than that. We know now there, there's bacteria and, and, and there's, there's viruses. And, and so disease or, or deformity or other things can be a result of lack of nutrition in, in the early years or, or, or various uh, you know, bugs and such. And so because of that, we know that, that while it's possible that, that these things could happen demonically, that, that more often than not, if it's a medical issue, you should treat it medically. Uh, now, here's the other extreme. Over here, you have the, many in the medical profession. Not all of you, certainly. There are many of you in the medical profession here. And, and, uh, and you know the truth, but there are many in the medical profession that they just don't believe anything has any kind of spiritual connotation or, or base or source. So, so everything could be treated with medication. And here's the problem. If somebody's oppressed or possessed with demons, all the medication in the world isn't going to free them from the demons. On the other hand, if somebody has epilepsy and, and nice people who just are untaught or not really thinking this through think, oh, I'm going to cast out the demon of epilepsy. Well, here's the problem with that. Epilepsy is a disease, so you're not going to cast out the disease. Now, now here's what we can do as we come to the middle ground. We can know that Jesus can deal with disease. Jesus can deal with demons. Jesus can deal with all of it. And here's what he instructs you to do. He says, if you're suffering, whatever you're suffering, if it's physical, if it's spiritual, if it's mental, if it's emotional, call for the elders of the church. Have them come and anoint you with oil and lay hands on you and pray for you. And the Lord will touch you. And if you sin, your sin will be forgiven. But, but here, here's a tip too. If you're here right now listening to this, don't go home and call us and say, hey, could you come over and pray for us? You're, you're here right now. That's just for the person who can't get down here. You guys just come forward at the end of the service. We're happy to pray for you. And the point is Jesus is able to do what we can't do. Well, we can't heal. But we can obey him by praying for healing. We're not the ones that cast out demons, but, but we can pray that he would. And the reality is he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His eyes go to and fro upon the earth looking for someone on whose behalf he can show himself strong. So his eyes are on the suffering, the sorrowing, the hurting, the needy, the wounded. He's blessed that Many of us are here and just rejoicing and doing great in him. He knows he's the reason for that and we're just responding to him. But his heart goes out to the hurting and suffering. So rather than judge them or try to figure out how they got in the mess they're in or if they're responsible for it, 
We should just minister to him. That's what he did. And that's what he's calling us to do. So he speaks to her. He touches her. He looses her from her infirmity, heals her of the physical implications of it. Immediately, verse 13, as he lays his hands on, she was made straight and glorified God. But we read, the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. Now, we have a woman bound by Satan and now we have a, a, a ruler of the synagogue blinded by his tradition. He's upset. Why? Well, it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. By the way, that was God's law. But it was not God's law that you couldn't heal or care for people or care for your animals or any need that was legitimate. You should and could meet it. So their tradition had said, no, we're not going to do that. And, and, and get how he deals with this. He's sort of another weasel like Pilate. And, and it says uh, that he was you know, upset indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and he said to the crowd, do you notice that? I mean, Jesus is the one who just freed her and healed her and he turns to the people and starts to chew them out like, you know, like why? He's not going to do it to Jesus. I mean, he realizes there's power here. There's authority here. So he just chews out the people. Man, Lord, keep me from ever doing that to this congregation. Being such a fool that you do something that upsets me and I, no, that, hey, if I start to do it, you guys just point back and say, cut it out, pastor. And well, and I will. But anyway, here, here he is moved with indignation, chewing out the people and listen to what he has to say to them. He says, there are six days on which men ought to work. Hmm, that's true. Therefore, come and be healed on them. And not on the Sabbath day. Here's the problem. I'm sure they'd been there many times, many of them in need of healing. This isn't a guy who could have done it. And this is a day it can get done because Jesus is there. This guy's not connected to God. He's not representing God. He's not operating in the power of God or demonstrating the mercy of God. He's just upset that, that, that Jesus is operating in opposition to the tradition that he so values. Well, the Lord answered him, and this always happens. He said, hypocrite, that's something you don't want to hear. I mean, not as a person walking with the Lord or certainly not somebody standing before people who are walking with the Lord. We saw in chapter 12, the very beginning, that he called the Pharisees hypocrites. We talked about it. It means one who wears a mask, who plays a part, who pretends to be something he isn't. What's Jesus saying? He, he is a hypocrite. Why? Because he's pretending to represent the Lord when his heart is far from the Lord. He's, you know, pretending to be concerned about the Sabbath or people when, well, none of that is the reality. He says, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it for 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the multitudes rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by 
him. When the ruler of the synagogue said that Jesus should not have healed the woman on the Sabbath, one of the greatest mistakes he made, as well as all of those who supported his position, was to put their desire to appear holy by keeping the Sabbath in a way that really was more tradition than law, above their love, their heart, and their desire to see God's work in the life of the struggling woman. They just could not understand the heart behind the law. And this type of thing can be a problem even today, as Christians focus on the letter of the law as opposed to the heart and the desires of Jesus Christ. As the early church in the area of Galatia began to embrace a return to the law, listen to what the Apostle Paul said to them about this in Galatians 1, 6 and 7. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.